Well, hey, welcome. How's everybody doing today? Uh, well, I'm excited to be here. If you don't know me, my name is Mike McAvoy, and I'm the college director here at UPC. Uh, I'm excited to get the chance to share a little bit this morning uh, about what I feel like God is, is, might be speaking to us in this text. I'm also excited because uh, in the college world, today is the last day of spring break. School starts back up tomorrow, which means that we get to welcome home 39 of our college students and staff on our two mission trips that have been going on uh, over spring break which is a really cool thing. Yeah. Um, we, uh, we had two teams, uh, one that's been in Colombia and one that's been in the Dominican Republic. And the team from the DR got back last night. And actually the team from Colombia landed at 1030 this morning. So, well, most of them, we're getting a few back, but we'll get them all. I'm, I'm confident in our ability to get them all back here. Uh, but no, thank you for commissioning them out a couple weeks ago as a part of this community. And I'm excited over the course of the next month for us to hear more stories about their experiences that they have been uh, having this last week. The experiences that they get to have here are just a really, really rich experiences. And for me personally, uh, I even, the first trip that you men ever did to the Dominican Republic back in 2004 was one that really altered my own life. And I get the joy in my job of being able to watch so many college students that get the chance to do something like this, get away from the everyday life and the rhythms and, and even their technology for a week and, and really experience what God is doing and what he wants to do through them. So I love that we get these opportunities. I'm excited to hear from the team uh, as they get back of, about what that experience has been like and what, where they have seen God at work. Uh, in fact, it's one of my favorite parts of my job, honestly, is uh, it keeps me really motivated going on these trips with students and getting the chance to, uh, just unpack what they're going through and what God is doing in their life during that, during that week. And, and so it's a really cool thing. Um, now you may be asking yourself, Mike, if that's like one of your favorite parts of the job, how come you're here preaching this morning and not getting home on a plane? And that is mostly because of these two uh, little, little girls right here, honestly. Um, if you don't know, my, uh, these two girls, Kyrie, uh, my 22-month-old daughter's on the right. Let's see, my left, your right, okay. And, uh, and JoJo just turned 15 months. They're seven months apart, and they're fantastic. Uh, I love being their dad. It's one of the joys of my life. They are just getting to this stage where JoJo tries to do everything Kyrie can do, but she can't. So she falls over all the time trying. Uh, but they both love mom and they love dad and they love being together. And it is a joy of my life to parent them. It also, I'm figuring out, it's a lot of work. <laughs> and no one really set me up and told me how much work it would be. My wife, Rachel's incredible. She's a working mom. So she works and, and we both work and, and parent and somehow try to find time for each other when we can, which is not the best right now, but it will be. I'm confident, um, but it, it's a joy, but I'll be honest, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm having to learn how to, how to like even do this job differently. I'm having to learn how to do things differently just with the amount of time and the energy that I have. I mean, the way I did, I love this job and I love working with college students. I love being here as part of this church. But when I was 
when I didn't have kids and even when I was single, like I was just able to do this job differently. If, you know, if you had to stay late for something, if there was a student that wanted to meet, I could always be like, oh sure, I'll meet with you at 6 p.m. Now it's like, are you kidding me? Like you gotta be home at five o'clock to relieve your mother-in-law from the kids. You know, and you can't do extra sermon prep on a Saturday evening at six o'clock. You know, there are kids that need love and dad's attention and, and uh, it doesn't work just for you to, to leave. And it definitely doesn't work for me to get on a plane for 10 days to Columbia uh, and go leave the family at home. So it's, it's different. It's not necessarily better or worse than when we didn't have kids or when, you know, when I was single, but it, it is different. And it requires a, a different kind of level of energy for me. And so others, we have great staff that have been leading these trips for the last week. They get that blessing and I get the blessing of being here with you all this morning. So I'm excited to be here. Let's jump in this morning. We continue on our series uh, that we've been going through in this Lenten season uh, that we are calling Crosswalk, taking special time to look forward to Easter and prepare ourselves in this season with, it, with a time of, of extra closeness, a time to get closer to Jesus in anticipation for what he does in his life, death, and, and resurrection on the cross. In doing so, we have a God that, that brings reconciliation. Okay, reconciliation that's still working itself out in us and through us today. And so in this series, we are being guided by the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians with a goal of not just looking at the cross, but looking at the cross in such a way that it becomes a lens for us to then look at the rest of the world and to even start to view ourselves differently. Okay, that this cross starts to shape the way that we think and we look at the world around us. And as followers of Jesus, we start to look through that lens. We don't just ignore the world around us, but we now have a new lens to see what's happening in the world and how we interact and respond as believers. So whether it's the, the war going on in Ukraine, the continual racism that we see here in our own country, or even the, the broken relationships one-on-one -on -one with maybe a friend individually in our lives. When these situations come about in our lives, we don't just ignore these, but we step into them with a new lens how to engage them through the cross of Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the good news that he came to, to reconcile us to himself and then invited us in to be part of that continual reconciliation for others, that we get to look at the brokenness of the world around us and the brokenness in ourselves and that we wouldn't just be about sitting here on Sunday, but that we would, we would come together and we would be filled up by God so that we could, we could go out and engage the brokenness and engage the pain of, of the world around us together. That we get to be the hands and feet of Jesus. That's a gift, church. That's a gift that we get to, to join him in his mission. Well, today I want to look at how our situation, even our, our relationship status, might be a blessing to others around us. And so we're going to focus on 1 Corinthians 7, verses 7 through 16 today. And I want to set this up a little bit by 
help us understand in 1 Corinthians, it's really bro- this book is really broken into two sections. Okay, and, and as we get into chapter seven today, this starts the second section, which is actually a direct response from Paul to a letter that the Corinthian church wrote him with a bunch of questions that they had. Okay, so this starts a direct response to their questions. We know this because in verse 1a, okay, the first half of verse one in chapter seven, it says, now concerning the matters with which you wrote. Okay, so he's responding to their letter. Now we don't have that other letter. That would have been great, but Paul helps us out by answering in complete sentences. And it's a lot like when you hear your friend on the phone with somebody else. You may not know who they're talking to or what the other person is saying, okay, but by their body language and being able to hear your friend, you can kind of tell what's going on in the conversation as a whole. And so throughout these next few chapters, in 1 Corinthians, there are a lot of questions that are being answered. Some that feel like they address situations that we might find ourselves in, and some that maybe don't feel like we're in that exact situation. And there's also some things that Paul addresses that may feel really obvious to some of us. And when that happens, it's important to remember that the the, the people in Corinth that are living in Corinth, they're responding to the message of Jesus Christ and starting to follow him. But as they do, they're completely unchurched. Okay, they have no experience with the church culture at all. And there's no moral compass that is guiding the community as a whole. Okay, it's different than the church in, in Jerusalem. As the, as the church of Jesus starts up in, in the city of Jerusalem, you have Jews that are coming to follow Christ. And as they do, they already have this scripture that we call the Old Testament that they're using as a guidebook of how to, to live. But in Corinth, they had no guidebook. Their way of living was pretty different. Okay, then, then what we might look at is, as a Christian lifestyle, it was one that was, was oftentimes filled with, with corruption. It was a highly sexualized society. Okay, and you have these people that are being changed by Jesus, but the culture around them is not necessarily changing at, at that same rate. And so you can categorize the church in Corinth as people who are excited about following Jesus, but have no idea the social norms of what it actually looks like. Now, if you've been going to church your whole life, I think it's important to remember that even within a church like this, that this happens to us. There are certain things that become normalized to us that are really weird to somebody that walks in for the first time. Okay, and if you've been going to church your whole life, I invite you to invite somebody new and start to look at it through their lens. Because it's different. There are some things we do when we take communion and we participate in baptism and when we somehow know how to say amen at the right time. Or we know, oh, it's time to stand up. It's time to sit down. It's time to greet somebody around me or not. Actually, that's a new norm we're figuring out kind of in this COVID world. Do I greet the people next to me? I loved when we used to greet people, but that's a whole nother topic. Anyways, if you're here for the first time, I just want you to know that some of these things that may feel weird or different to you, if it feels like we all have it, you know, we all know what we're doing here, we don't. Okay, we just know when the right time to stand up and sit down is, and that's about it so far. So. All right, let's jump into the text. We're going to take a look at it in three separate parts today. And so starting in in verse 7, Paul says this. He says, I wish that all were as myself am, but each has a particular gift from God. One having one kind and another a different kind. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is well for them to remain unmarried as I am. 
But if they are not practicing self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. So Paul is saying he wishes all could be single as he is, to both the widows and to those that have never been married before. And it's important to remember Paul at this time, he is, he's single. Okay, we know that. We also know that Paul was most likely married at one point in his life. Okay, we know that because Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. And in order to be a member of that, you were required to be married. So he probably was married at one point. And whether his, his spouse passed away or, or she left him, even maybe when he started following Jesus, we don't really know. But what we know is that Paul is affirming those that are single here like he is. Again, at first glance, this text was a little confusing to me because it appears that Paul is making a claim that singleness beats marriage. Okay, and as I read this, I go, does this go in direct opposition to kind of God's words when he creates humanity and he makes man in Genesis 2 and he puts him in the garden and says, hey, it's not good for man to be alone. And so he creates a suitable partner. Okay, and he says, hey, hey, Grants, this is very good. He says, now go be fruitful and multiply. This is good. Is Paul in opposition of God's words, okay, when he says that it's singleness, is he saying that singleness is better? It may seem so, but I wonder if Paul really what he's getting at here is not necessarily is not necessarily saying well, that's a tricky sentence that singleness is better than marriage but he's trying to give some dignity to singleness in a time where it's really viewed as second rate to marriage and i think this is actually something super applicable to us right now here's why i think this is important for us I wonder if in Christian living, even today, we have made marriage and having a family into the pinnacle thing. Okay, almost as an idol in our life, where there's now a subtext within the church that says that you are kind of a junior member of the church until you are married. It might be why a lot of our our single friends are are sometimes self-conscious about it. You know, I got married at 29 years old and and throughout my 20s, I did not view singleness as a blessing, (laughs) okay? I did not. I did not view it as an opportunity that I had. It seemed more like a struggle to me that I just had to get through. It seemed more like a, a waiting period. You know, in fact, it felt a lot more like this. Any fans in here of, of going to amusement parks? Okay, like, like Disneyland. Everyone loves Disneyland. I've never met anyone that's like, I hate Disneyland. Unless you don't like strollers everywhere. Okay. <laughs> me personally, I love roller coasters. I love big parks. Six Flags, ideal park for me to go to. When my wife and I lived in Southern California, we would go to Six Flags a lot. And we'd always try to pick the day that was the least popular to go. Like a Tuesday in September, right after school started back up. And everyone else was in school. We'd, we'd want to go on an unpopular day because we didn't want to wait in line. We wanted to get there and we wanted to ride as many roller coasters as we possibly could all day long. I did not want to stand in that line where you'd be there for like an hour and you'd have to walk through that little gate and then you'd walk back and then you'd walk back, like go into the airport security and you walk back and you pass the same people over and over. And and then you go through a door and you're thinking, oh yes, I'm almost there. And then nope, it's more waiting. Oh, it's more gates. I hated that time. 
it just felt like, and, and I was really bad. Some people in that moment, they take advantage of that and they're like, oh, this is a great chance to talk with the people I'm with. I just be like, okay, how do we get a little further ahead? You know, I, I never liked the waiting part. In fact, Rach and I would, you know, if we were with people, there oftentimes be arguments over, do we wait an hour in a line for the best roller coaster? Or do we like go in, into the not as good roller coaster that has no line and just ride that a bunch? And I would always pick that because I just wanted, I didn't want to wait. I just wanted to be on the roller coaster as much as possible. You know, to be real with you, this is a little bit of how I viewed singleness in my 20s as the little gates that you just have to walk through, that you just stand in, that it's a period of waiting, that, that I will eventually get to the place that I want to be, marriage, that's the pinnacle place. But right now I'm just kind of in this, in this time of waiting till I get to somewhere better. And that mindset was reinforced everywhere, especially in the church. I mean, in the church, people would always try to set me up with their granddaughter. Oh, I got somebody great for you. Or, or I'd go to a wedding and my friends would always make sure I knew every girl that was single. Okay, here are all the single people. Or people would always say things, don't worry, it'll happen for you, they would say. You know, I even hear this line sometimes for people that are single in their 30s and 40s when people say, oh, why is that person still single? They're such a great person. And I get the intentions are good, but sometimes what we're not so subtly communicating is that, is that singleness is second rate to marriage. The big picture of what Paul is doing here is, is he's giving dignity to being single. He's trying to help us see that it's not a curse. It's not a struggle we have to go through or a waiting period until we get to the place that we want to be. Okay, that mindset that I developed has nothing to do with the Bible or Jesus' heart for us. The Bible holds marriage in a high, in a high pursuit, but it, it also holds in a really high pursuit, the pursuit of Jesus in singleness. Paul says, I wish you could be single as I am. He says, singleness is a gift, it's not a curse. It's a gift in that there's an opportunity because of the advantageous way that a single person can give themselves and serve the Lord. It's a time in life free from the anxiety of being devoted to the care of another person. He's giving dignity to those that are single and saying that within the church, we need to stop viewing single people as if they will be better if they're married. Otherwise, we're reinforcing an incorrect identity that our worth is found in our relationship status. That was a great time to say amen, but that's okay. A different, a different day. <laughs> Pastor Aaron always helps me out. So feel free. I know it's a Presbyterian church, but you want to say amen, that's fine. It would help me out up here. There's a, there's a lot of distance between you and, and me in this place. You know, this starts at a young age. It starts at a young age where we start praying for our kids. Oh, I hope they find the right spouse. Maybe a better prayer for us would be, man, I hope my kid finds the right church community. We can have a really good, healthy community as a single person. Amen. Oh, this is good. This has got good in here. Oh, if you're online, you're going to want to come in person next week. Okay. Now I'll tell you, I'll tell you what Paul is not doing here. Okay, real clear. He's not saying that as a single person, you have no responsibilities. So you should just have no boundaries. Okay, and that you just need to be serving God and others with every hour of your day. This can easily be taken out of context and used to create unhealthy relationships with work. 
I'll tell you what I've seen in a lot of my time in ministry is that people that are married and especially people with kids see their boundaries approved and affirmed by others all the time. And subtly with single people, we hint at, oh, you don't have as much to do this weekend? Can you come in Friday night and help out with this? Can you be here early Saturday morning? We shouldn't take this too far and think that Paul is telling single people that they should just serve the church all day, every day with no boundaries in their life. But it's the affirmation that that being single doesn't make you less than. It's a freedom to be single and not feel as though your worth comes from being in a marriage. The big picture of this chapter is really whatever your situation, how do you steward that well? If you're single, be single. What would it look like to offer your singleness to Jesus by refusing the anxious pursuit just to get out of it? Could this be a time to learn to rest in the goodness of God in our life? Is it possible that we miss that if we either just sit around waiting to be out of that or if we're constantly on the hunt to find fulfillment in another person? If you're married, great. Paul says, go do your married thing. Steward that well, the relationship that you have and serve them well. And as a married person in the church, pay attention to the way that you interact with single people and see if what you're doing is in any way communicating that, that somehow being single is some junior varsity status. I think that's where Paul's leading us today. All right, we got more, we got more text to get in. So we're going to get into our second part here, uh, starting in verse 10. We're going to move forward back into the text where Paul continues on. And he says, to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does separate, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not divorce his wife. Okay, it's interesting here that Paul says, not I, but the Lord. And as we read the next section, we're going to see Paul say, not the Lord, but I say. Okay, and I want you to know that, that as we read this, this is not Paul just throwing out some random opinion. Okay, is that these are still God's words that are inspired, that are for his people. It's just that, that when, when Paul says, not the Lord, but I, what he's saying is this is not a direct quote from Jesus. Okay, but here in this text we just read, when he says, not I, but the Lord, that means this is a direct quote. This is something that Jesus said while he was here. This is a tough little section for me, to be honest. I'm not an expert on divorce. You know, it's tricky. You know, I see what Paul is saying. Divorce here is not ideal. If you're divorced, you probably know that as much as anybody. You've probably been through some stuff. And you probably understand why God is not a fan of divorce when possible. Because when two are married, united, God's intention is that they are now one. And in divorce, we're, we're tearing apart what God has made. We're dismembering the body. And with that brokenness, there are often casualties. And God does not desire brokenness for any of us. I also recognize, though, that that passages like this have been used so often as a justification to hold people in abusive relationships. 
than unhealthy relationships, telling somebody that they need to stay in a relationship, even if it's abusive, just because that's God's will for them. And in doing so, we take the scripture out of context, away from the bigger picture of God's desire for us, and we use it to actually harm others. That's not Paul's intention here. Okay, God's desire for all of us is, is health in our life. If you're in an unhealthy relationship, don't let anyone tell you that you need to, to stay in this relationship that is causing you harm. And Paul is saying that it's not right for us just to get out of a relationship anytime that there's any problems. Anytime that divorce just feels like the easier way out, that it's not always the solution for us. And, and if that just feels like we're taking the easy way out at, at times, in a, in a culture in Corinth where divorce was just such a part of the culture, such a part, get married, get divorced, just, just, you know, I think that what Paul's getting at here when he says, if you're separated from your spouse, don't go get married to somebody else. He says, stay unmarried or, or get back together with your spouse, if possible. If possible, let's give that a shot. If possible, try not to close the door all the way there because maybe there's an opportunity for reconciliation with that other person. And maybe that reconciliation is something that God can lead us to work through with them and repair. Paul, I think, is just a believer that God can do anything. That he can bring reconciliation in situations that we never dreamed of. And he's urging us to make room for God in our life to do the thing that we might think is unimaginable. God can even repair the broken relationships in our life that we think can never be repaired. However, I want to say that reconciliation is not always about repairing things to look like the way they were before. Some relationships are so unhealthy that being reconciled for us actually looks like shutting the door on them so that we can start experiencing the healing that we need as we move forward. Maybe for us it is a broken marriage. Maybe it's other types of relationships that might be broken right now. A lot of us have experienced <laughs> a lot of pain and brokenness these last couple of years. Let's be real, most of us have some relationships in our life these last couple of years that, that have some tension, that have some brokenness. Individually, the life of, of, of Christians, even in this church. Maybe there's a message for us today and, and maybe a different context even than marriage or, or divorce, but could there be places and relationships in our life where we could start praying for God to do the thing that feels unimaginable? for him to do right now. Okay, we're gonna keep moving into the third and final part of our text. Okay, it's verses 12 through 16. And Paul continues on saying, to the rest I say, I and not the Lord, there it is, that if any believer has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy through his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy through her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. And as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. 
In such cases, the brother or sister is not bound. It is to peace that God has called you. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. Okay, the advice here from Paul is simple and yet profound. You stay married as long as it depends on you. But if your unbelieving spouse wants out, you let them go. Stay together if possible because your unbelieving spouse or your unbelieving kids are made holy because of you. Now the word holy here is not about salvation. Okay, I want to be clear that your unbelieving spouse or kids, they're not saved because you are in their lives. He's saying that because you are in their lives, they are set apart. Okay, that's really what holy here means. It isn't about salvation for them, but it is about influence. It means that there is a moral and spiritual impact that is made by the life of the believer on those that are in their family. And the promise here is that your influence as a new creation in Jesus will have a profound effect on your family, even if you can't see it. As a follower of Jesus, you are a new creation in him. He resides in you. Where you go, you bring the kingdom of God with you. And you're going to be an influence on those that are experiencing daily life with you. As you experience the blessing of Jesus in your life, your life then becomes a blessing to others around you. So I want you to think about your own life here for a second. If somebody were to live with you, what would their experience be? <laughs> would they want to know more about Jesus because they see something unique in you? More love in you and from you than anywhere else? Would they see the way that you live and want to be a part of that? The grace of God is poured out on you in an influential way. The overflow of the love and grace in our lives should spill out on those around us. And it spills out best when we're close to those people and we don't distance ourselves from those people. That would be my encouragement. If it feels like a mess right now in your family, stay close to the mess. You know, in the last couple of years, uh, it's, it's been interesting. I mean, we've seen a lot of people. We see a lot of people, young people, any people walking away from Jesus right now? You know, in the last two years, I've had more parents email me and call me than my 14 years of, of doing college ministry before this combined, saying, hey, my, my, my kid doesn't want anything to do with the church anymore. My kid doesn't want anything to do with Jesus. What do I do? Or more likely, they say, can you please meet with them? <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot. I don't have all the answers. But I always believe as a parent or a spouse that we can stay close. We can stay close to the mess. We can stay close to those that are wrestling with, with, with what they believe. We can stay close. We can pray for them and we can keep living a life with Jesus at the center of it. And the blessing of that has the chance to make a huge impact on their lives. Stay close and pray to the God that shows up in the unimaginable places in our life. Now, Paul here, he's, he's writing this letter to Corinth. He's, he's preaching to this community. You know, I wonder what the message could be for us right now in the culture we live in, here in this community. I encourage you to think about what you're hearing from this text today. 
What's the message that God has for you and for this community at large? And I wonder if God is, is bringing us deeper in with him today. I wonder if he's leading us even in this space here and in our space at home to be a little more vulnerable as we bring our whole selves into community. Maybe that means bringing our singleness, not waiting and, and then feel like, hey, at some point when I'm married, then this thing can begin for me. I wonder if he's leading us to work toward reconciliation as a community by admitting the mistakes that we've made. I wonder if he's leading us to stay close. You know, Corinth was fracturing in a lot of ways because of the ways that this new church community believed that what it meant to live out the gospel. And it's so easy for our belief to separate us and have us stepping out of community with each other. But Jesus gives us a, a different way. He gives us a new way. He gives us a better way, I believe, on the cross. One where this cross, it allows us to walk toward each other in humility. It allows us to lay down ourselves, to follow the model that he gave us by humbling himself. He didn't have to do that. And he gives us a picture of what it looks like to maybe humble ourselves as we move toward others. Allowing the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus to shape us, to reconcile us to him. And then the invitation comes. The invitation from Jesus comes for all of us to then participate in his mission as a reconciler to help reconcile the world to him. That's my hope for us. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you're good. I thank you for the love that you pour out on us even after time and time again, when we seem to get it wrong. God, right now I pray especially for those that might be new to this, might be new in the building, might be new at home participating here. Wonder what does it look like in a world around us where it's hard to know exactly what it looks like to be a follower of you. God, I pray that you would be the, the one who is shaping us changing us, helping us find our identity, not in our relationship status or in anything else in this world. God, but in you as a child of yours. God, we are so blessed to have you as a good, good father in our life, Lord. But I pray that today we will be filled up by your spirit and move not just to stay in this place and keep that for ourselves, but to share your incredible love with those in our life, Lord. So we love you and we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Mom, thank you.